Thank you guys so much. And uh, for the third time from the stage, just thank you guys for everything you've done. I was thinking in the back, I spoke at Volunteers Week or Servants Week a few years ago on the last night, and I think 14 people came. So I don't think we're working you hard enough, uh, I think is the only thing I can think, because I think they all went to bed at 6 o'clock last time, or they just didn't want to hear from me, whatever it is. But I um, am, am so grateful for you. So it, I am the director of adult ministries. I also, uh, as of a couple years ago, am kind of like the thousand foot view uh, supervisor over activities. So many of the things that you guys have been doing this week in program and grounds and activities, I almost wept today as I walked on the pool deck and saw that the, the fence was up and the decking was finally done. I mean, that thing, we had painted over splintered wood for years and years and uh, it's so fun to see all these things happen and to, to watch pine needles disappear like magic. You guys are like magic, pine needle removers. It's awesome. So thank you guys so much. Um, my wife and I have been here at Hume for just, just short of five years. We came up in 2017 and um, just absolutely love being up here. I grew up um, coming to Hume. And when people say that, they usually mean like they went to wagon train and Wildwood and, and Ponderosa, Meadow Ranch. That wasn't true for me. I came to Human the first time after my senior year in high school uh, for a girl. So, you know, and she broke up with me the first night of camp before the opener on the rock right outside Ponderosa Chapel. And I swore I would never come back to Hume um, ever. And then I got in, the Lord called me into youth ministry. And in the summer of 1993, I joined up with a church in Irvine. And they were like, we're going to camp at this place called Hume Lake. And I'm like, no, negative. And then, um, my wife and I got married in 94, and we went on our honeymoon. The kids didn't understand why we didn't go to Hume for, for, instead of going on our honeymoon. And we said, you'll, you'll understand later. Um, but then from 95 till 2017, never missed a summer coming up here. And so when I say I grew up coming to Hume, my, like the years in which God shaped me from really post-college until now, Every single year, there was a milestone moment at Hume Lake. God used this place powerfully in my life, as I'm sure he has for many of you as well. And so it's a special place. I love being here and love getting an opportunity to teach. Um, as was said earlier, I uh, get to be an elder in our church, and so I'm afforded the opportunity to teach a few times, um, well, about once a month or so. And so I just absolutely love doing it. And... Um, Back in, truth be told, so like the, I didn't write something brand new for you guys. I just want to lay that out there. I've already preached this. About a year ago, we went through a series in the book of Matthew. And you know there's passages in the gospel that you read, and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that story. How many of you have ever done that? You're reading, and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, feeding the 5,000. Okay, mm-hmm, and they were hungry, and they ate the fish and loaves. And then what's, what's next? And you kind of move on, right, and you skim past it. And it's only if you're very, very disciplined to actually say, I'm going to reread every single word. I'm going to look for something new in this. It's easy to just skip over large chunks of scripture because they're very familiar to us. And so I was just smacked in the face with this passage from Matthew 14 uh, with a couple things. And so I just wanted to share them with you tonight, a very familiar story that I want to encourage you not just to gloss over because maybe you've heard a message on this a hundred times, or maybe you've even taught on this, or you've studied this, or you can recite it in the Greek, for all I know. And so I just want to ask you to look at this with fresh eyes for the first time tonight as we look at this passage in Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 14. This is the um, end of a very long day in the life of Jesus. 
which started with the news of John the Baptist's death. And so um, as news traveled throughout the land and his disciples came and told him, um, this was again the start of a very long day for Jesus that started with him hearing about the death of John the Baptist. And so in verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from them in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So he's like, I have to process this. Like, this is difficult news. I need some time. So he says, let's, let's go away here from, from a desolate place. And as you know how the feeding of the 5,000 happens, that place does not become desolate or lonely or uncrowded for long. For within just a matter of hours, this crowd swelled to 5,000 men, which some think could be anywhere between 12 and 18,000 people, show up, and Jesus has compassion on them. He, he sees that this great crowd was, there, crowd was there, and so he began to heal their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, the day's over, and they don't have any food. And I love Jesus. It's just like so, so perfect timing comedy. He goes, you give them something to eat. Why don't you feed them? Like, and I don't think he's being sarcastic here. What he's doing is he's elevating the inadequacy of the disciples, the insufficiency of the disciples, so that then he can step in and show them his sufficiency. So he has, you said, you feed them. They're like, we don't have any food, and they find the fish and the loaves. You guys, you guys know the story. So everyone is fed from that. It's the end of a very long day. So now it's sometime probably around four, five, six, or seven or so in the evening. And at the end of verse 21, it says, those who were with him were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. And then we're going to start our passage in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. By this time, the boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, love Peter, love him, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat were worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so Jesus, at the end of this day, has now proved and shown his sufficiency in the middle of the lack of of material goods and the lack of food, he shows that he is able to provide for the needs of not only his disciples, but for this incredible crowd. And he says, immediately, he makes them get into a boat. In the Greek, it's like he, he compels them. He was compelled. He's like, go now, get in the boat. And so I always wondered, why? Why the, why the urgency? And so luckily for us, this story is not just in Matthew. It's also in Mark and in... Um, Sorry, Mark and John. And in Mark 6.15, here's what it says. Um, sorry, this one is in John. At the end of John, at this story, it says this. Sorry, totally lost my place. Okay, so it says, uh, people saw the sign, they gathered within the baskets, the fragments, the five loaves, all that kind of stuff. And it says, 
perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So Jesus in Matthew is immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and he went away. Well, in John, we get a little bit more that he was perceiving that this crowd was so worked up that they were going to literally take him by force and make him king. And so the crowds didn't get it. And we know this from the New Testament. Most of you know this. The crowds wanted a conquering Messiah. They wanted a king who would come and just give the, the, the Romans the business. I mean, just smack them down, take them, teach them who was boss. Come. They wanted Revelation Jesus right now, right? Jesus on the white horse, all tattoos, sword coming out of his mouth. Like, I mean, that's like they wanted that Jesus right now. And instead they were getting teaching Jesus and, and kind of humble Jesus and sacrificial Jesus. And they didn't get it. I mean, he's going to be king. But this crowd wanted him to be that king right now to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. And so a few things might have been happening here. Maybe the disciples were getting caught up in this. Like maybe Jesus per- perceived that the crowd was starting to turn this way. And the disciples were like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, you should be king. You know, and he's kind of like, okay, settle down, get in the boat, get in the boat right now, like, right? And so he's like, they get in the boat. Or maybe he just needed time alone. He still hasn't had time to process John's death. He's fatigued. He's tired. We get the sense that when Jesus heals people, that this isn't just, this isn't just like a, and you're healed, and you're healed, and you're healed, like Oprah throwing out gifts. I mean, you're like just, you're healed. And then he's just like callous, unconcerned. We see that this is, this is, this is, this is a, the, an outpouring for him. And he's exhausted, And so maybe it's that, or maybe he wanted to just provide the disciples another opportunity to work out their faith, like to to process what just happened. Like, go get in the boat, talk about what you just saw. Talk about the fact that you started off with five loaves and two fish, and you ended up with 12 baskets full. Talk about that. Process through what happened. Let your faith be stretched. So it could have been one or all of those issues. And so verse 23, he dismisses the crowds, and he goes up by himself on the mountain to pray. And so this is when it's evening. He's modeling his relationship with the Father for the disciples. He's saying, I need to draw away. I need to be back, poured back into by my heavenly Father. I need to have time with him. What was he doing? Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was sleeping. I mean, that would have been completely fair, right? Maybe he was doing both. Have you guys ever done that? The prayer where you fall asleep and then you wake up and then you kind of, oh, and you pray a little bit more and then you sleep a little bit more. I mean, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you're falling asleep in the arms of Jesus as you're praying and you drift off. He's not like, wake up, wake up, wake up. (laughs) Maybe he was praying and sleeping or, or maybe he was just sleeping. We're not sure, but he was probably alone for around eight hours from what we read a little bit later in the passage. And so now they're out in the boat. It says, by now they were a long way from the land. In fact, John says they were about three to four miles from shore. Here's the problem. The journey from Bethsaida to Capernaum just follows the the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's about a three-mile journey from Bethsaida to Capernaum, and all you do is you just go out about a quarter mile, maybe, maybe 800 yards from shore, and you follow the shoreline. These were fishermen. They weren't explorers. Right? They weren't deep-sea Jacousteau explorers. They stayed close to the shore. That's what they did. And now they're three to four miles from shore. Okay, So if you kind of picture that in your head, they're supposed to go three miles like this, and now they're way out here because the wind was so strong. It gives you an idea of how strong the wind just was. And in the midst of this great storm, they've been now struggling for about eight hours in the wind for what should have only been a three-mile journey. 
I, uh, one of my favorite pastimes is watching, I'm so evil, I'm sorry, watching the first time rowboaters try to just get out of the channel. Like, just try to get out of the channel. I mean, they're facing the wrong way. They're pushing, not pulling. The one person's going the opposite direction. And when the wind is coming in, it's like a coin flip, whether they make it more than about 50 yards. And then they're like, this is the dumbest thing in the world. Like, they go back in, they get a paddleboard, you know, or they get a kayak or something. But it's, it's really kind of funny just to watch the exasperation. And sometimes we're nice and we say, okay, so... You're facing the wrong way, and you're doing the wrong thing with your hands. And, we try, and they're like, oh, this isn't bad. I mean, they still only get to the jumping rock, and then they're done. It's, 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 but the, Jesus is knowing all this. He knows the struggle, right? He is not unaware of the fact that the wind is kicked up and the storm is going, and he's thinking, those guys, <laughs> they're in trouble on that boat, right? And so he knows but yet he lets them labor in this. This was one of the things that struck me in this, is that the one who controls the storms, who we see later, could stop the storm at any time, lets them labor and struggle for about eight hours in the middle of this storm in this, in this boat. Don't think majestic fishing vessel, right? This is a small fishing vessel, and they're just getting belted by the storms. And so they're fatigued and frustrated and and maybe hungry or angry or hangry, right? Both of them, they're, they're, they're frustrated. And it says it's the fourth watch of the night. So there was four watches in the Roman time as, as far as uh, people would be on guard watching and protecting the cities. So it was 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to 12, uh, 12 to about 3 and 3 to 6 a.m. This is the fourth watch, the final one. So it's about anywhere between 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., around there. And it was evening when Jesus went away to pray. So if he went away to pray at eight o'clock and it's five o'clock in the morning, then it's been about eight hours they've been in the boat. And so they, they are in the middle of the storm. And I love what we see next. It says, Jesus, first they think they see a ghost, right? They're just terrified. They're, they're delusional at this point. They're just so beat up by the storm. They're starting to see things. They maybe have seen something else. And then they see this figure walking towards them and they think it's a ghost, and they cry out in fear. I love what Mark says about this in Mark 6.48. So it looks like Jesus was just out for a stroll, because it says, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Listen to the next sentence. Does anyone know it? He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass them by. He was just out for a stroll, walking on the water like, oh, there's those guys in the boat. I'm not going to stop right now. I'm just going to keep going. You know, and then they're like, wait, there's a dude walking on the water. It's Jesus. They start yelling out. And so, so Jesus wasn't coming to rescue them. I mean, think about that for a second, because I think that we all picture in our minds that Jesus is like, okay, I'll go get him, and he's walking straight for him, just beeline. No, he's just cruising. He's not even right next to the boat, and they're like, there's a person walking right there. So they call out to them, and so Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, and we're going to camp on that just for a few minutes. So was he going to stop? It doesn't really look like it, and they cry out in fear, and he says to them, take heart, I am here. In the Young's 
Living Translation, which expands the text a little bit. It says, he, he says, it's me. <laughs> I'm here. Don't be afraid. Take heart. And immediately we see that when he gets to, oh, sorry, um, immediately uh, reached out his hand. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's me. Do not be afraid. So at once he sees them and at once he responds and says, it's me, take heart, be cheerful, have courage. Literally what he's saying goes back to the Hebrew when, Jesus, when, when the Lord would say, when they ask who you know, gave you these instructions to Moses, and he says, tell them, I am. This is going back to I am, expressing the eternity of his being and the oneness with the Father. It's a big deal. Exodus 3.14, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, it is I. The Greek is ego, I, me, and it just literally means I am. And so Jesus isn't just saying, hey guys, it's me, it's me, it's Jesus, it's okay. He's saying, don't be afraid. Pause. I am. We think of the ramifications of that. He's not just saying, hey, it's me, Jesus, it's your buddy, don't worry. You know, like the guy, we just had dinner together right there, the fish and loaves, remember? It, it's no, it's a statement of declarative fact that you don't need to be afraid. Why? Not because your buddy Jesus is here, but because I am. Hebrew, I am. Jehovah, God of your ancestors, right? This is a huge deal, and this is one of the first declarations that we see where Jesus declares his lordship, and we miss it sometimes. We miss it because, again, we're not maybe students of the Greek, and, and I wouldn't know this if I didn't look it up in commentaries either, but we miss these things the, the magnitude of this statement that Jesus says to his disciples. So he's not saying, don't be afraid because your, your buddy's here. Don't be afraid because I am in all that that means. I have been faithful since time has begun. Like I am the Lord and I will not cease being faithful. I did not send you out on the ocean just so you could perish in the waves. You can trust me because I am. And we'll jump back to that in just a second, but uh, let's move on. So Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you, <laughs> which just stop for a second. I mean, so what are their options at this point? It's the ghost, right? The ghost they thought they, they saw, um, or it's some other dude, right? Or it's Jesus. Peter's still on the fence, which I don't know. Been a long night. I guess he's hungry, maybe delusional. Maybe he needed some fresh water. Some, he's getting scurvy. I'm not sure. But he's like, if it's you. And so Jesus is like, yeah, it, it's me. And he does, he just says, come. You know, it just reminds me of like Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix. He's just like, come. If you've seen it, you've seen it. Um, and so he says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Jesus didn't rebuke him for his lack of faith. He didn't rebuke him for failing. When, Jesus, when, when Peter begins to be afraid, right? And he, why was he afraid? Because he saw the storm. The, the waves are breaking over his head. I mean, this was a big deal. But Jesus, I love this. He doesn't rebuke him. He just takes a hold of him and says, why did you doubt? Like, why didn't you have faith? And it's not a rebuke. You see this more as a tender father would say to a son, like, oh, buddy, why didn't you trust me? 
Like, those of you who are parents in the room, you've all had that experience with a son or daughter where there's been something that you told them to do, and then because of that, because they didn't listen to that, they were hurt. And you're more sad that they're hurt than you are angry that they didn't listen, although there are times when that is not true. Sometimes you are just very angry that they didn't listen. Uh, but in this moment, it's like, oh, buddy, I told you, like, if you don't keep your feet on the pedals, like, come on, why don't, you know, I talked to you about this. And that's what we see Jesus doing is he says, why did you doubt? And they get in the boat, the wind ceases, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And I think many people think that verses 28 through 30 is the crux of the passage, because when we talk about this story, a lot of the times we refer to this as, oh yeah, that time that Peter tried to get out of the boat and walk on the water, as opposed to the strictly amazing thing that Jesus was four miles offshore walking in the middle of the storm in the water, right? And he makes a declarative statement about his messiahship and his godship. That's the focus of the passage, not the fact that Peter you know, oh, what do they say in the South? Bless his soul. Bless his soul. <laughs> you know, Peter, oh, you know, bless your soul. Uh, he tried. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that the wind ceases the disciples' worship because they, I think, saw just a glimpse of who this man was and his ability to to deliver his ability to have control over nature, his ability to have control over food. Now, they didn't totally get it because back in Mark 6, when this passage ends, it says, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. Well, that sounds different, right? Because Matthew says, they worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. But Mark says, they didn't understand about the loaves. They were astounded and their hearts were hardened. And so how do we get to the bottom of this? It basically means that they were astounded and utterly astonished, but they still weren't understanding. They had not gained any insight from the loaves. So it doesn't mean, like when we hear about their hearts are hardened, maybe we think of Pharaoh, right? Or people from the Old Testament who just like were enemies of God. But what this is saying is that once again, they had been exposed to the Messiah. They had been exposed to the powerful uh, Lord God Almighty in human form. They had seen him do miracles, but they had not gained any insight as to who he was at that time. That's another thing that just struck me about this passage is that I always just kind of like, okay, great. And they worshiped, great. Oh, they, 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 they really get it now. <laughs> they don't. As the New Testament continues and the Gospels continue, we see that there are times when the disciples, still having been exposed to all these miracles, still are not quite getting it because it's so hard for them to get out of their heads this preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be. And I think this wasn't one of my main points, but I think we struggle with that as well. I mean, don't fault them. How often have we seen God work only to fall back into the same patterns of lacking trust or unbelief or sin I mean, the process of discipleship is hard. Sanctification, the process by which we're becoming more and more like Christ and less and less slaves to ourselves or slaves to sin, it's a difficult, lifelong process. And of course, it's not just always a steady climb. There's the ups and downs, the ups and downs. And so it's really easy to look back and say, those disciples, pff, how could they not get it? <laughs> and then we go back to our little pet sin, or we go back to our struggles, or we go back to our pride. 
or we go back to our disobedience or lack of trust, whatever the things are, and we have far less excuse than the disciples. We have all of human history to see God's faithfulness as well as the entire canon of Scripture, whereas they were lucky to have the first five books of the Old Testament at their disposal at this time. And so maybe the really scholarly and the learned ones had more and could see the prophets and, and, and more of the texts, but we have it all, and yet we still struggle. So don't fault them too much. But what I see is God's graciousness and his patience with them, even though they still weren't quite getting it. And so three things, and then we'll wrap up. Three things kind of jump out at me about this passage. And I think this is so important for us to remember. One is God is sovereign. We, we know that word. We've heard it a lot. It, it means that he is all-powerful and has the authority to exercise all of that power whenever he wants. So someone can be super powerful, but then be also limited by their ability to, to, to show that power. So for example, think of the strongest person you know, the person that could literally, remember the power team? Do you guys ever remember the power team? They could rip phone books and bend steel bars with their forehead. I mean, it was awesome. Now they had all this power, and it might have been fake, I'm not sure, but it was super cool. But, but they couldn't just go up, they couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They couldn't just walk out in the middle of the, like the, this room and start breaking chairs over their heads just because they had the power. Or someone who is, um, has a bunch of authority but no power to carry out that authority. Maybe you can think of people kind of like that. Maybe um, I think of almost like the Queen of England, like, right? It's like tons of authority but no real power to do very much, you know, because of the parliament. I don't really understand it all. But God... All the power and all the authority, the psalmist writes, our God is in the heaven and he does as he pleases. No one does as they please. Teenagers might think, oh, I do whatever I want. No, you don't. No, only God, only God does all he wants. He is sovereign even over the storms, even over sin, even over doubt. He is sovereign is he is sovereign in these things as well. He allows the storm to continue in the life of the disciples, right? For eight hours, he had them struggle because there was things that he wanted them to learn about himself and about themselves. And in the same way, he will allow us to go through storms. Some of you may be in one right now where you're like, I am just waiting to see Jesus walking on the water towards me. Um, hopefully he doesn't pass you, Right? But I mean, we, there are times when we go through difficulties and, and sometimes maybe we get to see what God's doing, other times we don't. But I promise you, in his sovereignty, if there are storms in your life, there are difficulties. Um, what do we see other places in the New Testament in James? Consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. Right, And God's got a plan in those things. And so even when the disciples are in the midst of the storm or when we are in storms, he is still sovereign. And then secondly, all the storms, I believe all storms have a purpose. We don't always know. Um, and, and, and God teaches us in the storms. He grows us in the storms. He refines us in the storms. I mean, I don't know anyone who's grown significantly by only having an easy life and having everything go their own, go their way, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Even if you just look at simple things like, how do we learn? How do we really learn? I mean, a lot of times we learn from books. That's good. That's easy. Or we learn from the experience of others. But most of the time we learn by just doing it and failing and doing it and failing or 
Like I learned, so today I was soldering something. <laughs> Perfect illustration because it's on my finger. Um, I, was, I was flood soldering some battery terminals and I had heated up this lug and, and, and I'd filled it full of solder and it was like white hot, like, like white hot. And so I was ready to put the wire in and it started to fall out of my vice grips and I instinctively just grabbed it. I just grabbed it. And I have this perfect U-shaped burn just seared into my forefinger and my thumb in the perfect shape of this battery lug. And it just, and, and, then, and then I was holding it. It was full of boiling hot melting solder and I didn't know what to do. And so I held it for a good second and a half before my body said, drop it, you fool. <laughs> and so I dropped it and then all this solder went over the floor of my shed and it was just in my fingers just throbbing, right? Okay, so I learned something today. <laughs> Did I already know? Did I already know that you shouldn't touch things that are white hot and boiling? I, I did know that. But it's just another reminder. And then this was on the very first cable I was making. So as I made the other ones, my process completely changed. I put the wrench in a different place. I put the, the vice grip in a different place. I locked everything down. I tested everything first, and I made it bombproof. Why? Because I tried and I failed. And then I learned from it. And then I made adjustments and got better. And so I think maybe the Lord gave me this illustration, this just for tonight. Who knows? Um, because when I see this now, this burn that'll be with me for a, a few weeks, I think, um, I'll remember this process of growth. That that's how God often does it. When we get everything right and everything just falls into place, that's a blessing from the Lord. Praise him. That's great. But it's not necessarily the way that we learn and we learn to trust him more. But God grows us in the midst of the storm. And then finally, when the storm comes, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, it's simple, right? We understand that, but he is the only one that can carry us through. And when we take our eyes off him and we focus on the storm or on us, both of those are broken means of dealing with the storm. Either we focus on the storm or we focus on, on us. But we need to focus on Christ. Now, let me close with this. The gospel, which we talk a lot about at Hume here, it'd be really great if the gospel at its core was that when you receive the gift of salvation, when you receive the gift of what Christ did for us on the cross, not only do you get reconciliation with the Father, but you also get an easy life. Like, if that was the gospel... Like, I would, that'd be super cool. <laughs> I would love reconciliation with the Father and a really easy life. That would be really great. But the problem with that is that it's found nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it even hint that our lives will get easier because we become reconciled with the Father. In fact, what we see, the only guarantees we see in Scripture is that life will probably get more difficult. And what does Jesus say? Like, parents will rage against children. Children will rage against parents. Brothers will be divided. I mean, like this is, our life will be a life of struggle. There will be persecution. There will be difficulty. There will be tribulation. Those are what's guaranteed. Wealth, wellness, healthiness, uh, calm life, obedient kids, bosses that love us and give us raises all the time. Like, I mean, all those things, they're just not in Scripture. They're not promises. And when we rely upon God and when we, when, we, when we 
expect God to fulfill promises that he's never made, we will be disappointed over and over and over and over again. And so the gospel isn't that there are no more storms in our life. The gospel is that we serve a God who is sovereign over the storms and that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled with that God. And that if he never delivered us out of any storm, never answered any of our prayers, never made life easy at all, never healed anyone we knew, it would still be enough. What he did for us on the cross would still be enough. And so as we read this passage and this passage of Jesus walking on the water, or sometimes I think mistitled Peter attempts lamely to walk on the water, the point isn't, oh, we need to have more faith so we can take steps of boldness. I mean, that's, a f- that's, that's maybe a point, but the point is Jesus is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over everything that happened. Nothing in all of 14, verse chapter 14, from the death of John the Baptist, was that out of God's control? No. The people without food out of his control? No. The storm? No. Making the surface of the water have a, have a surface tension strong enough to bear the weight of a grown man, was that out of his control? No, it wasn't. Because nothing, nothing is out of his the, the purvey of his sovereignty. And I think, for me, that just gives me such, oh man, I could use so many words here, joy, peace, contentment, um, thanksgiving, gratitude, love. Now, now, none of those are because my circumstances in my life are always great or easy, but it's because I know who's in charge of the storm, and that's what gives me hope in that. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for just your word, for um, reminding us over and over again in scripture that you are sovereign over all. And whether our lives may seem easy for a time or difficult for a time, or whether we are going through intense persecution, or whether everything is going our way, God, you are completely sovereign and Lord, please don't let us fall into the trap, the trap of um, only recognizing our need for you when our life begins to fall apart and only truly relying on you and crying out to you and seeking you when things are difficult. God, don't let us forget about you when life is easy. Don't let us forget about you when things are going our way. So Lord, would you cause us to desire to submit to you, to draw close to you, And as you promise us in James that when we do that, you will draw close to us. God, that we would resist the devil and that he would flee from us because of our resisting through your strength and through your power. So God, as these men and women have served so faithfully up here this week, God, would you protect them as they head home, as they go back down the the mountain to quote-unquote real life, and many go back to difficult circumstances with health, with relationships, with jobs, with um, school, whatever it might be, Lord, that in all of these things, you would help us to rely upon you and trust in you. In your precious and holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.